You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you from Montecito, California. Uh, before we begin the show today, I do want to remind you that there is a website called wealthformula.com, which is associated with this particular podcast. And uh, that's where you should go if you want to participate in some of the activities and some of the other resources that we have in the Wealth Formula ecosystem. Uh, if you go to wealthformula.com, you will find a number of webinars, you'll find uh, a free download books, that kind of thing. And it's also where you can go to sign up for uh, some of our lists, such as our accredited investor club. If you are an accredited investor, you should consider signing up for our accredited investor club and, uh, you know, getting some access to some private deal flow. And so if you sign up for that, you will go through our onboarding process. Pretty easy to do. You could also talk to me along the way. And then, you know, maybe put some of that lazy money to use. So we have some really exciting stuff coming in out of Investor Club. By the way, in addition to the things we're acquiring, we have some, you know, divestments coming up. We have some refis coming up. Lots of success to celebrate. So it's pretty exciting. Outside of that, I also want to remind you, uh, if you have not done so, I know it's getting late, but... If you are going to come out to Dallas for our uh, meetup, you should sign up like as soon as possible. That's wealthformulaevents.com with an S. Love to see you there. It is going to be a great activity in addition to having guys like Tom Wilwright and Doug Ludmel and you know Janet LePage um, from Western Wealth Capital, founder, CEO, will be there. Dave will be there. Dave Steele will be there. In addition to that, we're going to go check out some of the property that we own in that area. And probably the most fun part is just hanging out with one another, which, uh, again, this this group is extraordinary. And when you come to those events, you can really get a good sense of it. Go to WealthFormulaEvents.com. Hopefully, I will see you there. As for today's show, I will tell you that um, it's not like I'm that old. I was finished residency in 2000. Was it eight or nine? Maybe I am getting old because I can't even remember when I finished. But anyway, I shortly realized there uh, after reading, uh, you know, some books, taking that purple pill, as I've called it before, that my inherent nature is as a flaming entrepreneur. That's what I am. That's what it's in my blood. It's not something I tried to be. In fact, I don't know if it's a great thing to be. It's not, it's not a, you know, it's, it's sort of like being a person who jumps out of airplanes and gets thrills that way. I'm not that way, but when it comes to business and stuff, that's where my mind is. Um, and that kind of flaming entrepreneurial spirit, you know, caused some serious problems for me, you know, earlier in my life here. That syndrome uh, that, you know, some of us entrepreneurs have and maybe some riskier investors have is called the shiny object syndrome. Now, actually don't know if that's classified in the medical journals yet, but it should be. You see, after surgical residency, I had a couple of major business successes, right? I realized I was an entrepreneur, went on and did it, had big success. And then having never failed in business before, I kept pushing the limits. Now, it wasn't about the money back then. You see, natural entrepreneurs, people who are born entrepreneurs like me, like George Newberry, 
You know, we love money, of course, no doubt, but we use it mostly as a way to keep score. If you create a successful business, you make money. Ding, 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 ding. And that means you win the game. And if you don't make money, you lose. So it's kind of, you know, a binary score system, pretty easy to keep score. And at first it wasn't a big deal. I was tinkering with businesses that were costing me, well, they might've been costing me thousands of dollars, but I was already making seven figures uh, pretty quickly after training from these business successes. Then I made a major mistake made a major, major mistake. I pushed the limits on the very goose that was laying the golden eggs and letting me do the things I wanted to. You see, I tried to expand my highly successful businesses way too fast while financing it entirely myself, taking all the risk on, being undercapitalized, this, that, and the other thing. Anyway, it was a big gamble. In fact, I would say that had I won that gamble, it would have been game over, but I lost and losing this one was a big deal because I actually kind of killed the golden goose, right? I was millions of dollars in debt and things only seemed to get worse. It's funny how that happens. You know, you have, you know, weaknesses and stuff in your management or whatever, and things just get worse, right? And it's, uh, it's easier to see when you're, you're in trouble than when you're doing well. In fact, Here's the thing. The only reason I survived that big mess, right, was because of something very boring I was doing on the side. You see, my dad had been a real estate investor all his life. He still is, although he's now, you know, shifted into some of the stuff that we do in our own investor club. And I grew up thinking that real estate was the only quote unquote conservative investment. So I know a lot of you, I know you may have grown up learning about stocks, bonds, and mutual funds, and that's how you, you know, you can be a responsible adult. But for me, my parents were always like real estate. That's the only thing that makes money. And that's the only thing that you should invest in. And so I had part of me, even though I was playing around with these different things, saying, okay, well, you got to buy at least one or two apartment buildings a year. So while I was tinkering with those shiny objects, I decided to buy some apartment buildings like grownups. That was what I was taught. Now, admittedly, there was some luck involved with the buildings that I bought, the time when I bought them, the areas that I bought them in. But during those early years, they ended up yielding about 500% for me in terms of my equity return in in less than five years. You know, it's enough for me to sell them and, you know, bail myself out of the big mess I had made, uh, which, uh, which is not usually what you want to do when you have a big win. But the whole thing was a big lesson for me. Sure, I saw cash flow from those buildings for a few years, but I only truly appreciated the massive equity growth that had occurred when there was a divestment right? It was a real eye-opener. It's just too bad that I had to spend it all on, you know, paying off the sins of the bad decisions made by me and my management team uh, in those other businesses. So anyway, this all happened pretty quickly after residency. So I was fortunate to have plenty of time to recover and rebuild myself. And when I ultimately 
you know, retired from medicine and became a full-time investor four years ago, um, I had to control my impulses, right? There, It is. It's almost like being an addict where, you know, it's a shiny object addiction. So shiny objects existed not only in the business world, but as you know, as you know, as you look around all around you, especially those of you who listen to a lot of podcasts, that their shiny objects also exist in investments as well, right? So that's what we have to be careful of. And I will tell you that my shiny object syndrome did spill over early on, and I made some stupid investments into things that I thought were exotic, but quickly learned that the only asset class that was consistently making money was bread and butter real estate, you know, multifamily, you know, some self-storage, stuff like that. And I had to keep repeating a mantra to myself that I continue to do every day. And that mantra, you've heard me say on this show multiple times, whether you like it or not, hopefully you're going to listen to me. Boring is good. Boring is good. There's nothing sexy about working class apartment buildings or self-storage. You're not going to bring your friends over there and show them. You're not going to brag about it to them with your friends. They're not trophy assets. They're often ugly. They're often in areas that you don't want to drive through. But in the right hands, they consistently make money. And in many cases, the returns themselves, well, they are kind of sexy if, if, if returns turn you on. My lifetime annualized returns on real estate are probably about, well, conservatively 40 to 50% annualized return all in, conservatively. So... Even though it seems boring every year, the vast majority of my investable income goes into apartment buildings and self-storage. Do I invest in riskier stuff? Yes. Yes, I do. As you know, I do. It's calculated, though. It's very, very calculated. And, and you know, how much that allocation on is increasing as I feel like I can afford to increase it. But 10 to 15% of my investable assets right now, my investable income, I maybe I call it because it's they're not assets till I invest them, goes into things that could potentially create a meaningful life change for me. And what I mean by that is a, a meaningful change is like, okay, it's going to be different for everybody, but usually, you know, it's going to mean adding some zeros to your net worth. If you make, you know, two or $3 million a year right now, then an extra million dollars or $500,000 is not going to make necessarily a huge change to your existence, but probably 20, 30 million would, right? And similarly, if you make $100,000 a year uh, right now and you have an opportunity to have something that you know pulls off a $2 million return, uh, that's going to change your life, right? So those are life-changing types of things. So that's what I think about asymmetric risk for. And 10 to 15% of my assets go into those those types of investments. It's very calculated, but my goal on those is adding zeros. Adding zeros. That's what I'm, I'm most concerned with. Or concerned with, I shouldn't say, uh, because I'm not necessarily concerned because, you know, if I lose it, that's okay too. Right. I approach these investments knowing and being okay with the possibility that there will be no return of capital at all, sort of like buying a Maserati like I did last year. Um, listen, there are some people, however, that make their entire living on the asymmetric side of the world. And I find it fascinating. 
Uh, I can't say that I have the uh, the intestinal fortitude for that, but this week's episode on Wealth Formula podcast will feature an interview with one of those guys, Jonathan Hung. And so if you're curious about the world of angel investing, we will have that interview right after these messages. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula podcast is Jonathan Hung. Jonathan is a co-managing partner of uh, East West Ventures. He's an angel investor and venture capital partner who believes that in a bright future for businesses seeking to broaden their horizons in North America and Asia, uh, in support of that mission, he serves as co-managing partner as he talked about Unicorn Venture Partners and, and a senior mm-hmm. venture partner and head of due diligence at Expert Dojo, providing a hands-on approach to supporting companies by offering a strategic expertise and operations management. Uh, Jonathan has a lot of degrees and a lot of schools. He's gone to the University of Southern California, London School of Economics, MIT, and the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Jonathan, welcome to the program. Thank you, Bob. Yeah, happy to be here. Yeah, this is probably the only podcast you're going to do where people will be like, yeah, I've been there. I've been there with all those schools, with all these doctors and stuff like that. It's be interesting. Maybe I know some. <laughs> you, 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 you might. You might. I know. My uh, let's see, my ex-wife was at London School of Economics. Emma, a few Wharton guys. We definitely have a bunch of people here at MIT. Good. Well, let's let's start here. What we're going to talk about, uh, Jonathan, is um, you know something that's different for us, right? And we're going to dive into uh, the concepts of uh, angel and venture capital. We'll talk a little bit about you know um, some startups uh, that you're involved with yourself and all that. But you know, let's let's start out. We t- talked a little bit offline, and we you know I, I, I kind of uh, let you know that we we generally are uh, a group that uh, focuses you know, on, on real estate, uh, and you know, re- what we consider sort of these real assets, stable assets, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly there is a subset in our group are looking for other opportunities and, and we hear about angel investing and venture capital. Can you tell us kind of, kind of give us a very basic one-on-one what exactly is angel investing and what exactly is venture capital? Yeah, definitely. You know, the funniest thing I'm going to tell you, Buck, is that's the only asset class that I do not personally own at this present moment. I do not own any real estate. Oh, you better join uh, us. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, you know, I mean, my family has a couple of homes, of course, yeah. but I personally do not because I have dedicated my life to being an angel investor and venture yeah. capitalist. So I would say the biggest difference between the two is an angel investor, listen, it's you. It's your money. You get to decide. Obviously, you're not writing as big a check as a venture capitalist because, you know, VC, you probably have, you know, other partners along the way, other limited partners, right? Because you want to have, you know, more bang for your buck. And so there's more diligence involved. There's more of a time crunch in the sense we have to invest in a three-year horizon period for a fund. Um, But as an angel investor, like I can write a check at any time, at any point. And I've done that uh, since 2012, done over 80 plus deals. I'm also an LP in 25 different uh, funds and venture funds along the way. So it gives me a tremendous amount of deal flow and just meeting uh, great people who I you know, just like why I got all those degrees, you want to make sure you can make the pie bigger and find greater things by working with other people. Yeah. Well, it's curious. You you sort of referenced it a little bit on how the, you know, the schools uh, that you went to and stuff um, helped mm-hmm. with this, but, you know, obviously deal flow is going to be critically important. Oh yeah. Uh, and so 
when you, as an angel investor, and now as an angel investor, you're not necessarily looking at it, you're not coming at it as a fund or something like that, or are you, or you're coming at it as an individual? Um, it just depends. I wear many hats along the yeah. way. You know, I'm also part of a family office uh, known as Truzel Ventures, where, mm-hmm. you know, their check sizes are a little bit bigger. You know, they yeah. look at pre-seed to pre-IPO deals. You know, their yeah. check size could be anywhere from 50000 to $50 million on one deal. So it's a different hat. Like for angel investing, I would say the best angel investors should be looking at companies worth under $20 million. Sure. Right. That's really where you get your most bang for your buck and you're taking a lot of risk along the way. I mean, there's certain like an angel investor can't get into uh, a series C deal. It's just hard because, you know, I know one company of mine that I got in because of my network, you know, they're raising 320 million at 1.8 billion. And like mm-hmm. the three biggest check writers are like 160, 140 and 20 million. Yeah. Like no yeah. angel investor is going to put that kind of money behind one deal. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so as an individual angel investor in, first of all, your deal flow, is it again, just your schools, your background, how, tell, tell us a little bit more about how you're getting uh, that deal flow and what kind of deal flow you, you typically get personally. It's everywhere. You know, it's the schools I've went to. I've done a tremendous amount of networking, you know, uh, brand building as well. You know, I have a wonderful marketing team that I help, you know, scour LinkedIn, finding mm-hmm. great companies, great entrepreneurs to, you know, set up meetings, mm-hmm. get times. Like, honestly, one of my best tools is Calendly. You know, without Calendly, I wouldn't even know how to like, I have like so many emails, like, you yeah. know, always have to have meetings every day. And it's just like, it, it's a lifesaver for me. But Really, like, especially being part of so many funds as well, you, you see that there's the great winners out of those funds and they're going to create SPV opportunities. And maybe, you know, they can't go do more than one SPV. And I, I fortunately have the capability and the firepower because of my network of friends and investors that we can put in bigger check sizes, right? And they make the intros to me because, you know, we're fast, we're quick, we're easy to work with. Um, once I have East West Ventures, which is going to be a fund we're going to start in the beginning of 20. 2022, it's going to be different because that's mm-hmm. going to have an invest committee. There's going to be memos that we have to write. There's going to have to have issues of like, well, does that fit our strategy? Is it too late stage? You know? Yeah. And, and sometimes it sucks because, you know, I'm going to have to pass on deals while I personally think it's going to make money, but it just isn't right for the fun. Right. And those are the things you have to consider. Right. So as an angel investor, your typical checks that you're writing, or is they, you know, are they typically 50 grand, hundred grand? Like what, no. what, what kind of, Yeah. Um, I'll give you the range. The, the, the lowest check I've ever written for an angel deal was through a friend from business school. I gave him 5k, but usually my yeah. typical is 25 to 50 uh-huh. and I've written up to 800,000, sure. you know, for something I believe in. Um, yeah, it, it just depends. Mm-hmm. I'm actually right now, uh, I, I got an exit and, you know, instead of buying a car or a bunch of, you know, a Richard Mill watch or something, I'm going to put it back into work, sure. you know, cause I, that's what I love, you know, helping the next generation of great entrepreneurs yeah. build their companies up. So one of the things that, you know, in your bio that you, um, that you mentioned that I, uh, I thought was interesting is really, uh, your focus on uh, or your specialization on due diligence into these companies. Uh, I'm curious if you can kind of give us an, a sense of what that looks like, because I can, you yeah. know, this is something that we've actually, you know, even within our network talked about quite a bit. I mean, uh, my background and, you know, what I'm equipped for very much is, okay, you know, we've got a hundred million dollar apartment building. I can, you know, I know what to do, right? right. I know what to look for. Um, and right. I, if it's and I feel net secure and all these, yeah, yeah all the well, real estate terms, yeah, all the commercial versus residential. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And, and it's also, you know, for, for guys like me, 
there's something mm-hmm. concrete about this and and it's a little bit you know maybe for me it seems like gosh it seems like a lot easier to do the due diligence on you know these companies so tell me a little bit about like you know what uh, what goes into due diligence of companies that you're thinking about investing uh, as an angel it's definitely different than when you're investing at growth equity you know when you're a series c or series b investor from my perspective it's all about the team you know, from my point, there's more art than there is science right now. Yeah. Like, listen, I, I know a tremendous amount of smart people who are great with numbers at Wharton and MIT. And you know what? That's the, that's not what it is here at this mm-hmm. point. Like when your company has zero revenue or, you know, you don't even have close of anywhere money, like, you know, from other great big time institutional investors, you're going to have to see the person and who he or she is, like what their background is, their experience, how gritty they are. You know, how Mm -hmm. relentless they are. Um, Are they willing to go the extra mile, you know, to work? They don't have to. It's not like, look, I tell people being an entrepreneur, you know, it's not nine to five. You're not working nine to five. It's 24 seven. I've fortunately run my family's business. And listen, like I have to deal with uh, my staff in China. That's a 15 to 16 hour difference, depending daylight Mm -hmm. savings or not. Like, you know, just because you go to bed doesn't mean work stops. So when I look at an angel deal or a VC deal for seed stage investing, it's really about the team. Obviously, you want to know what the idea is, if it's like a software as a business, software, SaaS, you know, versus direct consumer or consumer product good. But really, it's the team I focus on more. Then we're going to go into like the metrics of, hey, customer growth and revenue growth. And how do you expect to get there? Because my job when it's this early, I'm trying to figure out how you go from zero to 100,000. And then from a hundred thousand to a million, and then maybe, you know, a million plus, but that I always tell people is for the next round of investors. I want my, my goal is to get you the series a as a seed investor, I'm going to invest in your series a, but that's it. It's done after that. You're going to, you're going to college. I get you through high school, right? Yeah. Cause just because you graduate high school doesn't mean you're ready for success. <laughs> you know, right, right. you have the next round of professors and advisors help you along the way. As an angel investor, do you, how much do you actually participate in helping to, I guess, mentor or help, uh, help these companies, or is it pretty hands-off? It just depends on what company it is, right? Sometimes, mm-hmm. listen, if it's just cash, I totally understand. And when we have a quarterly call or an annual letter, I'm totally fine with that. Cause my check size is not that big. Mm-hmm. 25, 50,000 is not that big, but like, I, I would caution every entrepreneur to know this, like not all money is good money, right? There might be a headache to have somebody give you 25,000 call you every day. Like mm-hmm. you don't want that money. Mm-hmm. You know, you gotta have somebody who's beneficial and also finding right. your expertise. I know I'm good at supply chain. Right. I know I'm good at international business and doing manufacturing. Like that's my business. I've done that sure. as my family's business for the last 10 plus years. So it's like, if you have issues with that or working with Walmart, Costco, Amazon, like I've done that come mm-hmm. to me for those things. Right. I'm not going to be the best coder. You know, I'm, I could point to you where you should find a great front end developer, a back end developer, but I don't, I'm not a front end developer. Right. <laughs> so, um, for you yourself, what kinds of uh, companies, um, you know, is there help, you know, health or tech or whatever mm-hmm. are you focused on or are you kind of all over the board? Honestly, I'm industry agnostic, but if I said I would have a specialty, especially with something like East West, I think we're great at these things, consumer and consumer tech and really entertainment as well. Like we have the right context and influence in Los Angeles to get you the right person to invest, the right celebrity, uh, understanding the supply chain, understanding like how do we get to you a Nirwan, for example, if you're a new beverage company or a new like a uh, uh, sugar-free cookie, right? How can we get you in Target? How do we get you to Costco? You know, getting these, these steps of getting in front of the right buyers. So I think 
my background is better at consumer. Now that doesn't necessarily mean I don't know, understand like uh, B2B or enterprise or software development. I do because I've, I've made these investments. Like, you know, one of my, sometimes like, like here's a perfect example of being an angel investor and being a venture capitalist. Um, last year, about last year, I, I was presented the opportunity to invest in Doxen Series B. Mm-hmm. And I had a great meeting with Russ, the CEO of Doxen. But you know what? The valuation kept getting too high for the VC, for the firm I was with. So we passed, but I still did it. And then six months later, Dropbox bought Doxen. You know, yeah. I, I look like a hero on the IRR, right? But as an angel investor, I could do it. But as a venture capitalist, I couldn't because the metrics just weren't there to justify the return, the risk and reward scenario. Right. So, you know, it, it, that's why I was like, Hey, I get it. And I, now I can understand. And, and, and the next investor or next entrepreneur I look at, I say, look, this, I have this relationship. I could possibly make that intro for you. If you're in that business as well, or your enterprise sales and like how you should focus more on B2B customers and not B2C, you know, because for someone like Doxen, they have, Hey, everybody uses it in my world in venture capital, but that doesn't mean they have a lot of great, like enterprise value customers. Mm-hmm. You know, they have a lot of like one-off individual customers, but they don't have enough enterprise. Sure. And that's why they weren't going to necessarily scale to get to that unicorn valuation and the getting bought by Dropbox for 165 million made a made perfect sense. Right. And it integrated so well with their platform. Right. So, you know, if somebody is looking into, uh, you know, these kinds of uh, investment vehicles, I mean, either they individually become angels or they... Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, maybe there's angel funds. I, I don't know if that's is that typically. Oh, works. yeah, there are tremendous yeah. amounts like angels so, and, and like SPVs. Listen, you're certainly the unicorns and there's certainly the, you know, you hit you hit the home runs and all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But but in terms of like, you know, investing in a number of companies and the returns that you were hoping to get with the addition of the failures you're going to have, like what what kind of projections do you typically, you know, would, would you, would you typically see from a, from a fund, an angel fund? Angel fund, honestly, there's you no know, past performance is not indicative of future results. Sure. That, that's built into me, you know, right. from being a financial advisor back in the day. Um, I, I would say, you know, as an angel investor, always like going to Vegas, always be prepared to lose everything. Right. You know, that's how I see it. You know, every time I put a 25K check, it's like I'm prepared to lose this, mm-hmm. you know, because because I'm prepared to lose this because I'm making the bet early to see if we can get to product market fit. Most mm-hmm. angel investments are not ready for product market fit yet. But the next check I write for that company, then the risk rewards now is totally different and I can model it a little better. Right. We're saying, oh, no, no, this is it. Like perfect example is, you know, I invest in a company called Bear Flag Robotics. Mm-hmm. It's basically the idea is autonomous tractors. It, that company got bought by John Deere uh, mm-hmm. about two weeks ago for 250 million. I got in at three and a half million dollar valuation. I went to business school with the founder mm-hmm. and CEO, and I was one of the first check writers. And I invested in him, not the idea because mm-hmm. he didn't have the you know the the coding ready for tractors, and he sure. even needs more money now from John Deere to get there to make it even more commercialized. But you know, I was prepared to say, listen, this is my friend. I trust him. Right. As as a founder and a CEO, and let's see what happens, you know. Mm-hmm. And then later on, like you know, three years later, I had the opportunity to put more money in, 
And like, and I saw this tremendous amount of traction and I knew that like my, my, my bet was much safer and I put even more money in. And so that like, and then that money that I could do for my funds and network, listen, that 10 X, obviously the first check, you get a much higher multiple because you know, from three and a half to two fifty, but that second check, I was so much comfortable with putting in more. And that's just like where you're, where you double up on your winners. That's a real true strategy. Yeah. how you go look at it. When you look at a fund, most fund investments, they allocate most of their funds to their second bet, not mm-hmm. to their first bet. Sure. They'll sure. put a lot of seed investments, like maybe 40% of their fund, but they'll scatter it through more different bets, seeing which one will be the overall winner and then load up on their series A. Got it. So do you have a sense from your own investments and the amount you've put in and what the returns are, what, what your, uh, what your yield has been? Um, I was actually doing this for my fun recently because <laughs> I had to take a look at it. Yeah. Let's think. Um, what was the numbers? Um, I think I'm tracking right now, uh, beating the S and P pretty mm-hmm. well, you know, cause, cause it's, it's funny to say, because like, how do you say versus unrealized versus realized? Like, is it, you know, like I'm going to have a couple of markups soon and they're going to look like, wow. Right. But they weren't wow a year ago. You know, because you just didn't raise the money. So like, it's, it's tough to say sometimes, like, I don't even care about IRR, mm-hmm. you know, I care about like money return. And I know you have to like, listen, like I'm an engineer and I've been gone to warden. So like, Hey, they'd be like, what are you talking about? But for me, it's like multiple uninvested capital. MOIC means more to me, mm-hmm. you know, cause it's like, okay, I started off with 2 million. Now is it worth 20? Like, that's what I care about. Sure. I don't care about the time horizon. You know, because like, I mean, you do in a certain sense, like, yeah, it's like after 100 years, sure. But, right. but like, you know, I've started since 2012 and like, I'm about to like realize a lot of winners right now because I'm at that 10 year peak now. And, mm-hmm. I, and I constantly keep putting in money because like, here's the thing, every year, even if there's a recession or not, there's going to be winners in venture. Mm-hmm. You know, there's going to be those unicorns that are life, like, you know, career defining investments you make. And that's the thing, you just have to keep, going you gotta get on, keep going on the uh the ride you know don't get off the amusement park <laughs> yeah so for me like i know that my moic is much greater than it was when i started in 2012 look here's a perfect example but i mean if i may if i invested in my third investment that i ever saw as an angel investor it'd be outrageous like because i got this pitch this company at a 20 million dollar valuation where it was like you pretend to buy and sell stock and you get a score every week and you, you compare yourself but you couldn't actually buy the stock and I was thinking like, well, why is this company called Robinhood? Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, if I invested 25K into Robinhood, 20 million, it'd probably be worth 30, 40 million right now. Sure. And sure. my IRR would be ridiculous, but you can't count that because like, yeah, there was other losers along the way, but like, but that cleans up everything. Sure. That one Uber, that one Airbnb. Yeah, that, and that's the fundamental idea here, right? For people who are interested in this, to um, to me, it goes into, you know, what I would call sort of an asymmetric bucket. You know, it's the money that... You don't worry about too much if uh, you're going to lose it and you hope uh, that you hit a grand slam at some point. And that's really what, to me, that's what it seems. But correct me if I'm wrong. Um, I think yes, as an angel investor, mm-hmm. but not when you're a fund manager. Because you're, 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 you're selling the belief and the facts, uh, not necessarily the facts, but you're, you're, you're selling the people that you are a good investor mm-hmm. and you know that you can return better than the S&P 500. I mean, look, look who they brought on right now to run the Yale endowment, mm-hmm. right? He's under the age of 40, right? And he learned under David Swenson, 
who mm-hmm. ran the Yale endowment for 36 mm-hmm. years. What did David do, which was amazing, and unfortunately passed away this year, was that he allocated a lot into private investments, not like, you know, the stock market. Sure. And he believed like, because we didn't have to use it that long, and endowments have a longer time period in her investment horizon. I mean, he's beating the S&P every year because right. of these bets that you make. So you, when you invest in a fund manager, your belief is that like, look, overall, they're going to find great winners that are going to beat just investing in Apple. You know, which is great. Apple's an amazing company. I own Apple, I own Amazon, right? But that you're trying to outdo the S&P 500 because whether, you know, rain or shine, whether there's a recession or not, these companies in the long run will be worth more because of how, how, how little they were worth when you first got in. Sure. Tell us a little bit about you. You've kind of put an entrepreneurial hat on yourself as of late. Uh, How is that transition going for you? And and, uh, tell us what you're doing. Yeah. For me, it's just like, you know, if you're going to sell dog food, you better eat it, you know? Yeah, yeah, right. And it's like, for me, it's like, I've been an entrepreneur uh, before it, 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 it didn't work out. And some have, this is a sense where like, this is the third time I'm investing in this CEO and we become really good friends along that process. And, you know, I, I fortunately have the time to be an operator right now as I raise my fund. And really it's one of our core investments. What I want to say core, but one of our investments we're making out of the fund is going to kitchen data systems. And so it's great getting like, you know, it's not great like dealing with the paperwork of HR and, you know, trying to find an office space, but just like building up the team is so fun in this stage. And like, yeah. it gives me great experience again, like, like we talked about the schools I went to, I thought every time I went back to school, I learned something new. And if I would go back now, you can learn something new every day to help your business grow. Because if you're doing the same thing you were doing a year or two years ago, you're doing something wrong because everything mm-hmm. changes. Yeah. Like great CEOs, great executives, they're always trying to find out what's the blind side, what's like missing, what can I do to improve my revenue? What can I do to make things leaner, better? You know, so I love working as an entrepreneur now too. And like, even like, it's funny, I have to take off my investment hat. And put on my fundraising hat and it's a totally different world right and these i go to people who i like to co-invest with on deals and it's like wow is this how you react to entrepreneurs like i'm gonna learn how to be a better investor too and ask right. the right questions i'll be like you're not asking this question which is so much more important to understand so it's gonna yeah. make me a better investor too yeah what's your company do so kitchen data systems is basically a restaurant as a service model fans or those kitchens uh find ways of scaling much faster, right? Because look, it's great to work with cloud kitchens to a certain extent, but the problem is it's a huge capital expenditure. Why not find, you know, small, medium kitchens and restaurants who have extra capacity to make food for somebody else, other, someone else's brand. And it's not indoor dining or, you know, it's more about takeout and deliveries and then really scaling. Like if you had a virtual brand, for example, let's say, uh, you know, a, a, a salad, you know, that was so great. Like, how do you get to all 50 states? It's hard. Mm-hmm. It's really hard, but we can help you do that. We have, we've, we've scraped the internet. We know the 1.6 million restaurants that make sense. We're going to find the people that who are already doing your food and then can scale because, you know, why, why give only four or 5% if you work with like uh, a next bite or a, a, let's see a virtual dining concepts, right. Or more of your company. Yeah. Good, good. You know, maybe you could give us a sense of, A, you know, how to get in touch with you, but also in general, like advice to anybody who's interested in, um, you know, exploring angel investing in general um, and, you know, how to get involved with that. 
Sure. Um, I have my website, jonathanhung.com. There's a lot of great blog posts we do, uh, sometimes daily, sometimes weekly. Also, you know, find me on LinkedIn. I think LinkedIn is a great source uh, mm-hmm. to find the right connections and people. I mean, see if we're, where there's like a warm introduction. You find somebody who you work with, like we're connected this way. Let's find ways of getting involved. And like, uh, I don't mind helping people make money. You know, you don't have to put money in my fund. I love talking about being an angel investor and like getting more people excited. Yeah. So yeah, please find me on my website or my LinkedIn. Fantastic. Jonathan, uh, great to meet you. Good luck to you. And uh, hopefully we'll, uh, we'll have you back once you find the next Robin Hood. Hey, I might, I might have, might have already. <laughs> it's somewhere in the portfolio. Thank you, Buck. <laughs> we'll be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, yeah, you know, it's uh, it's interesting stuff. I think uh, this whole idea of, you know, angel investing and that kind of thing, I think is very appealing to me. But again, you have to kind of figure out where it belongs in your portfolio if you're going to do it. I think for me, you know, I would never do this just to beat the S&P. I mean, we're crushing the S&P and investor club types uh, uh, investments right now. And uh, I would say they're substantially less risky than, than angel investing real estate. It's brick and mortar. But uh, anyway, it's worth uh, worth learning about. And I think, uh, you know, either contact Jonathan if you want to learn more or, you know, contact some of your local angel investing groups. I think there's some big ones, especially on the major cities. I and mean, if nothing else, you probably meet some really interesting people in, in doing that. Anyway, one more time, I do want to remind you, sign up for our event, the Wealth Formula uh, Meetup in Dallas-Fort Worth. Go to wealthformulaevents.com, and hopefully we will see you there. Uh, that's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time.